of when any one of us have booked a spirit airline flight. Like, <laughs> 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, no, why did I do that? But you're locked in, right? And so there's no way out. And then you start to think, well, maybe it'll be okay. But then you're like, yeah, but it won't because I've done this before and it's horrible. So then I started to think, well, maybe this will just be like a rite of passage, right? Like you're afraid to do this and you're doing it. And by the way, the funny part is I'm a psychologist. And so I'm always encouraging my people to do scary things. I'm like, okay, so what if you go and it's awful? Like you can leave. What if you have a panic attack? That's fine, you probably won't. So I'm like, okay, so I guess this is my rite of passage. And um, I've thought about rites of passages a lot, and I know Bo's talked about them before. I grew up Baptist. I don't like the word evangelical. It's a trigger word for me. <laughs> but um, I grew up Baptist. I grew up really in a wonderful, wonderful um, even though it was pretty legalistic, a wonderful community. Um, but we didn't have any rites of passage. Like, we didn't have a first communion. We didn't have a confirmation. I'm literally probably 5 to 10% Jewish, but I like to really stretch it and tell people, you know, I'm, I'm like a big part of me just Jewish. But I didn't have a bar mitzvah. So we had no rites of passage. So speaking of bar mitzvah, it's kind of interesting when we think about in a bar mitzvah service, that is a time where people say, you've become a man. You are a man of the Torah. That's what a, a bar mitzvah means, boy of the law. Um, and being a man has always been really interesting to me because I've often felt like I was a boy. Um, and I think a lot of Americans and maybe just people in the Western world have a lot of thought about what being a man is and being a man. And, um, you know, now there's a transgender movement and gender nonconforming and nonbinary and all these words that even in school I didn't know. Um, and I've always felt like a boy. Um, so I've never felt like maybe I'm, I'm not a boy, but I've never always felt like a man. And one of my supervisors, when I was in grad school, would hear me talk, and I'd say, well, they wanted to work with a boy, you know, so they requested me. And he said, Ronnie, it, it's funny, you, you always say you're a boy, but I see you as a man. And I was like, oh, like, no, no, totally, trust me. Like, I don't even know why they're letting me do half the stuff they're letting me do. I shouldn't even have a car. Um, <laughs> so... In thoughts of rites of passage and being a man, um, I think for the first time in my life, I do actually feel like a man. And it really started um, with the rite of passage, so this is kind of leading into the story, um, last summer. Well, maybe all of last year. Last year, 2018, was probably the hardest year of my life. Um, maybe my family's life, but again, the therapist in me is like, this is my perspective. I'm not going to bring anybody else into it. These are my, my um, experiences. So um, my husband was moving um, his business last year, which was something really stressful and complicated, and there was money problems, and, um, you know, right into the last minute. So it was so stressful, and it was so hard working with people all day, dealing with their depression and stress and anxiety and really deep stuff with people, um, which, I mean, I'm blessed to do, but it's heavy. And then come home, and, you know, I'm with somebody else who's, like, you know, having a really difficult time, and I felt like I had really no respite and no break. So much so, I ended up getting mono eh, maybe around March of last year. Um, and then I just, I was just worn down and felt all, all my energy went into work. So literally by the time I got home from work, I just had to sleep and take care of myself and make sure that I'd be good enough for my patients the next day. 
So that was about March. In May, my sister, who's a cancer survivor, she had brain cancer, all of a sudden had symptoms of kind of like what I would describe ALS, which is like my scary disease where your brain is clear, but your body's not working. Like she couldn't talk, really. She was slurring her speech and um, she couldn't really even walk. I mean, it would be like two people on each side of her um, could walk and it ended up to be scar tissue from where she'd had radiation 16 years prior. So then we're dealing with that, and that was major. I mean, that was extremely major, extremely stressful, so I'm still really not healing. I'm using all of my downtime to get better. And then I will fast forward to right around now, I, end of June, beginning of July, we're at my parents. Things finally seem to be settling down, and um, we're grilling, reading outside, sitting by the pool, and my dad's telling a story. And I'm, like, if I'm right here, my dad's sitting right next to me, like, facing at the head of the table. And all of a sudden, he just starts, like, he's telling a story, and he just starts laughing. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, what's, what's so funny? And he just keeps laughing. And I'm like, this isn't, this isn't, something's weird. And so I touch his arm, because it's, like, right here, and I, I make eye contact with him. So I'm, like, going right back into my, you know, my rotations and um, internships. And I'm like... Dad, are you okay? What's wrong? And we're locked eyes, and he's just laughing and like, <laughs> and so I turn and go, yeah, okay, we need to go to the hospital. Something's not okay. So really within that, and this is only probably about 20 seconds, right after that, he's kind of like, well, I'm fine. What are you talking about? I'm like, well, why were you just not answering me? And he's like, what are you talking about? I was telling a story. I go, you weren't telling a story. You were laughing. So I'm skipping some parts because I'm a long storyteller. So then all of a sudden, now I am. My family and friends are laughing right now. So, so I say to him, get in my car. We're going to the hospital or I'm calling 911. And I literally said, my idea seems like the easy one, which is getting in my car or we can do it the hard way. I don't care. I don't live on the street. And, you know, you can go in an ambulance, which is fine. So he finally agrees. He's like, okay, okay, okay. So he gets in my car, and he says, I want to go to Henry Ford, West Bloomfield, because Beaumont's kind of a, there's always a lot going on there. So I say, okay, I'll take you to Henry Ford. So we go to Henry Ford, and we get there, and, you know, you check in at the ER, and uh, um, the girl behind the window goes, so what are you here for? And he goes, I don't know. you got to ask him. So I tell her the story. They take it seriously. They take him right back right of the way, and he's in a CT scan and getting blood work, and the physician comes out again, and she's like, okay, so what happened, da-da-da. So I tell her, and um, so then we end up, you know, back in a room after, you know, quick, quick, quick blood work, CT scan, some other stuff, and uh, she comes back, and she goes, so your blood work looks actually awesome. You seem really young for your age, and, um, but the CT scan shows you have a growth on your brain. So we're kind of just sitting there, right, stunned, because I've had mono. My sister's had this major, major brain issue where it looked like she could have had brain cancer again. And now, literally, like two months later, my dad has a brain tumor. So clearly, the house we grew up in has something leaking into it, <laughs> right? So I know my dad's okay, and we're all still thinking clearly, because as soon as the doctor leaves, the first words he says was, do you think we should tell mom? <laughs> right? Right? 
So, and this is like really the right thing because our family's been in such chaos, like, wait, can we hide this? And I go to him, I think we have to. Like, right? Like, I think we have to. So I call my mom and I'm, the doctor was kind of downplaying it. She's like, you know, it looks super calcified. It could have been there your whole life for like a long, long, long time. This isn't something new. It doesn't look like it's anywhere else. So I say to my mom, I'm like, oh, there's something on his brain. They're not really sure. But he's staying in ICU this night. So I'm like, so if you could come and bring him some like clothes or something, that'd be great. So she comes out there. You know, she brings him some clothes and we go over everything. I spend the night with my dad in ICU and because um, he has an MRI in the middle of the night because that's the quickest they can fit him in. And um, so during this time, I realized... I was just not overthinking things, right? I was just stepping forward. I was like, all right, we got to go to the hospital. Is it scary? Absolutely. Here we go. I texted a couple of my good friends. This is not like me, okay? Like, I don't reach out for help. And I said, like, hey, listen, this is what's going on. I'm really scared. Hey, this is what's going on. I need your prayer. Hey, this is what's going on. I can't handle one more thing in my life. One thing I was telling Bo about this is I put it on the green card. That is so not me. I can't even tell you. The fact that I'm up here is so bizarre. It's hysterical. Just me putting on the green card like, I'm having the worst summer of my life. Like, pray for me that I can get better from mono and be a good therapist and meet my patients where they need to be. Um, and I realized... You know, as I've struggled, and I think a lot of Americans have struggled, you know, we, we don't have these rites of passage. We're never told, like, you're a man, you're a woman. And, you know, being a gay man is even weirder because it's like, well, I feel like a, I, I am a boy and I feel like a boy, but what does it mean to be a man? And I, I don't really know. And I think what it means in all these situations is just stepping forward and doing what it, you need to do, no matter if it feels terrifying, and reaching out for help and being vulnerable. Like, I was vulnerable for, for the first time. And guess what? Sometimes, like, walking up on the stage, I felt like, oh, maybe I'll pass out. Who knows? Um, <laughs> right? Like, okay. But I didn't. And, um, you know, I was really able to meet people who, and it's funny, the conversations that come, one of my best friends, Joe, is also a therapist. And he said to me, Ronnie, it's really hard for me to be vulnerable and reach out. He didn't have good parents. His parents aren't supportive. They're still alive. He has no communication with them for years. And, or at least his dad. He does talk to his mom. Um, but he said, it's so nurturing for me to support you. And I need that back. And I'm telling you right now, as I'm reaching out to you, I'm going to need this back because this is hard for me. Um, and I, I let people step into my life and I let people help me and I cut my work schedule back and I talked to my boss and I said, listen, like, you know, if I'm going to do a good job, this is what I'm going to need to do. Um, so I think that's what being an adult is. And whether it's being a man or a woman, it's saying like, hey, look, I'm doing it and I need help. And these are where my flaws are and letting people support you. And that's it. Thank you. Ronnie, great job. Thank you so much. And we want to affirm you. You are a man. And you, and you well, I mean, in the best possible sense, right? Showing 
affirming gender, you know, masculinity and femininity are beautiful things, and we want to affirm you in that, showing the beauty of this. And all of us are trying to determine what that is. And so I said, what, is, what, is that, what does beautiful masculinity look like? And it's courageous, right? And so it's like courageously leading. And, and we're, we praise God that your dad, Ron, is, is healthy, and right, you had the brain surgery, and he's all good. We praise God for that, but we praise you for your courageous leadership, in that, where you're, you're seeing your dad, you're wanting to help him. He, he has been the anchor, and you're stepping up and saying, Dad, you follow my lead. You know, this is scary. Go, let's do this. Let's do this. And your courageous leadership in being vulnerable, right? Because as men, we don't do that well. That's leading, right? It's telling the truth about what's going on in our lives. It's a beautiful part of what it is to be masculine, which the majority of the world struggles with. So thank you for sharing your story um, and, and, and of that. And all of us have a lot to learn from that, so thank you. So we're in the Psalms, we're doing this series too, and so today I just want to, um, we want to connect here in just a few moments with the Psalm. And what Ronnie just shared has so much in common with the Psalms, because the Psalms, even though they're primary poetry and prayer, as we've been saying, because we've been wanting to encourage ourselves to pray the Psalms, to use those as prayers. Um, they are also filled with story. And so today, we just want to give you a little bit of encouragement to encourage us in this life of prayer, in this life of engagement in story. And so that's what I want to encourage you with today, the kind of takeaways is stepping into the story um, and, and praying. And so that's what we're trying to do. Pray the Psalms every day. Open up the Psalms and pray them, one or two, morning and evening. And so I want to begin with a psalm. And so last week, if you were here, we used Psalm 1 and 2 and said these were introductory ones. These are not actually prayers. Even though the books of Psalms are prayers, Psalms 1 and 2 aren't a prayer. They're a preparation to prayer. But Psalm 3 is actually a prayer. So would you stand with me? And let's pray together, read together, Psalm 3 in a communal sense. So the words are up there. We'll take our time, right? We're not, you don't speed read the Psalms. You read the Psalms slowly, right? We're praying them. So we're gonna do this together. We're gonna pray through this Psalm. We're gonna read it together. This is Psalm three. You ready? A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I will lie down and sleep. I will wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. You can be seated. This is a prayer. Right, and we're going to get into it as we continue to go on. We're going to spend a, a, a morning talking about enemies because this one's like, hey, break the teeth. And 
punch the person in the jaw, knock out their teeth and the enemies. But this is a prayer. Verse one, Lord, how many are my foes? It's a prayer. But one of the coolest things about this psalm is it begins with this introductory line that these editors of these master spiritual masters put in there in order to direct us. This prayer has a context. This prayer has a story. There's a story behind this prayer, and it tells us in the first line. And here's the context. A psalm of David, who was one who wrote a number of of the psalms, and it says this, when he fled from his son Absalom. And for a group of people, that means something. There's a story here that is written about. There is a context in which this prayer is prayed, and it's significant. So let me give you a background if you, know, if you don't know the story of David and Absalom. David was the king of Israel. God appointed him. He took him from a shepherd, from a nobody, and made him king. He rose in power. He had a number of wives, and he had a number of kids. Absalom was his third born. When David began to age and got older, Absalom began to win over the hearts and the minds of the people. Boy, it sure takes my dad a long time to hear your cries for justice. Man, if I was king, I would listen to you immediately. You, come, I'll, I'll kiss your hand, right? So Absalom won their hearts, and eventually it leads Absalom, David's son, to form a coup and says, huh, I'm going to overthrow my dad, which means I'm going to kill him and become king. And his plot moves into place. He wins the hearts and the minds of the people. And Absalom takes over. David has to flee for his life. And leaves out with only a minority of the people and a minority of the soldiers. And flees from his son into the wilderness. And from here a battle, a civil war breaks out between father and son. Son and father battling against each other. David regains control but at the cost of his son being killed. How many of you can relate to that context? Any, anybody? None, right, all right. So the context is, is significant, but it, it's not the exact context of the story. None of us can relate to this. But then in the end, how many of you can relate to trouble? Every one of you can relate to a context of trouble that is driving you to pray. And David's life was full of stories like this. All kinds of things, conflict and failure and love and fear and betrayal, salvation and loss. Every day there's a story, a beginning and an end, and over a lifetime there's this culmination of a story, a story that's being told. Psalm 3, this one right here, is prayed in the middle of a story. That's where he wrote it, in this middle of it, as he's exiled from his son, being attacked and pursued. All prayer is prayed in the middle of a story. Not your story. There are no storyless prayers. All of them have a story connected. And so most of the Psalms, actually, if you look at them, are written this way. They have an introductory line to them that shows this reality to place them in the context of a story. I think there's something like only 34 of them that don't give you a context of the story. They wanted us to know that prayers are driven out of story. 
And we're invited to engage into these stories. And there's something really interesting. David, there's 13 of them that are very much like this one that are very specific incidents of trouble. They list this, him being hunted, him being pursued, him being in trouble, him failing, being in extreme trouble, 13 of that. And so in this, there are places of, there's lots of places of praise in David's Psalms, in these stories, but in these, troubles is what gets the prayer started. Prayer is tied to a place of trouble. Can you relate? Do you get that? I think this is just so huge for us that trouble is what gets the prayer started. That's fine, right? That's good. That's what we have in here in the Psalms of seeing prayer initiated by the context of our lives, by the circumstances of our life. But I don't know if you can relate to this idea of um, you being in trouble, but not initiating into prayer. Can you relate to an idea of being a spectator to your own life, being detached from actually the troubles that you're in? From not actually recognizing them, not actually being honest about them, trying to put them aside because, man, to acknowledge the trouble, that's that's a lot of emotional energy, right? You're going to step into the interior of your life. You're going to look around. You're going to tell the truth about really what's going on. The conflict is at play. The realities that are there. And sometimes it's just easier to be detached. And so prayer, is, in this way, is a way of becoming attached to the reality of our lives. A way of receiving and deepening the meaning of the stories that we're in. It's the regular place of prayer is in this ordinary life. But I can relate to being detached. I can remember um, years ago, early in my marriage with Carmel, when, her, when she first got in a car accident, she hurt her back. And I can remember that she was in chronic back pain for a number of years, and I felt like almost a spectator to that, right? I felt like I was detached from this reality, and I I met with a friend here in the community, and I was like, man, I I feel kind of weird. I'm not praying about, I'm not bringing this to God, right? I'm I'm not crying out. I'm 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 not even speaking about this trouble. I'm just living day to day, gonna get up, gonna make breakfast, gonna get dressed, gonna do that, gonna ask you on your doctor, but I'm not, I'm not really engaged in the full interior of the trouble. And I can remember being drawn in and being called to open my mouth to the reality of this trouble of a chronic pain issue and expressing, this is not good, I don't like this, God help, and crying out daily in that. Even in, in, in miraculously, right, what, what happens, right? God hears us, and he heard us. And we were praying consistently in you for years, and God heard. Even most recently, when all of a sudden, recently in our most recent trauma of uh, losing her ability to breathe on her own, I have felt detached at times, wanting to say, I, I don't even want to, I don't even want to engage the interior of this trouble, right? I don't want to enter it. I just want it to be taken care of. I want it to pass and we'll just move on. Now, now trouble is meant to drive us into prayer. Can you relate? And I know you can because I see the green cards. Even this last week, the green cards, right? We write our prayers on them in here. Even from this last week, there was relationship troubles that people were writing about, mental health troubles, a depression, 
transition troubles with the transitions of life. There was suicide trouble, there was cancer, there was addiction, there were family issues, there was sickness, there was loss, there was joblessness, there was financial trouble. That's in the prayer requests. Right? And so we know, boy, this is something that every one of us can relate to, a trouble. And so currently, could you even pull one trouble, one trouble that you're currently having, Is that easy to pull to mind, a trouble in your family, extended family, and someone you love? Can everyone bring something to mind? What's a trouble? Can you bring something to mind? Does one immediately pop into your head? Raise your hand. This is my experiment. Is there a trouble in the world, your own life, your own context, your family, your kids, your job, your relationships, your mental health, your sickness, your finances, right? Those troubles, there's a story. That is your context. And those stories, what the Psalms are doing here is they're giving us a context and saying, enter it. Enter it. Enter it and engage in prayer. And what the Psalms do, because they are poetry in prayer, they allow the troubles of David, even though they're not exactly ours, not, right, and we don't relate to Absalom and the son trying to kill us, but we relate to enemies and trouble. And it gives us language for our current context. Are you allowing your current context to drive you? The Psalms and these titles are meant to tug at us. They're meant to tug at us and say this, remember the story that you are in. The one that you're in right now. And enter it. And by praying, and by praying, so here's, here's a big truth statement, right? And by praying, we don't get out of the hard work. Right? We're actually entering it. We're actually fully engaging it. This is the part, I love Ronnie, your story, right? This is the part of being an adult. This is the part of growing into maturity. Where we're going to begin to take responsibility, not in a way of saying that we're going to solve all the problems, but we're going to call a trouble a trouble. We're not going to be detached and act like well, we just got it all together. No, we're going to enter it. We're going to internalize it. We're going to enter into the middle of it. And there still will be hard work of dealing and difficult work of sin and of enemies and of family that we got to get further into. And instead of maybe even finding it easier, we may find it more demanding. As you actually say yes to the trouble, we recognize it and we call it out. We began to call upon God, began to admit the trouble that we are in or others that are in. I love Joel's story. When you shared with us, Joel, from that moment when you're like, I'm in trouble with an addiction. There's a freedom from saying that, but it is demanding, right? To to take the count, to walk the steps, right? And it leads to freedom by God's grace, but it was demanding to enter into it. So it's not all rosy. We may find it more demanding, but we're no longer exterior. We're, We're in it. We're interior to ourselves, to others, and to God. So that's the first story. First story of the Psalms that moves to prayer is the story of your own. And you may say, goodness, wow, if it's actually going to get more demanding, why would we do it? Well, it's not, the only song, it's not the only story that's going in the Psalms. There's another 
huge story that the Psalms of Prayer continue to invite us into. They lead us into a story. See, um, prayer that is only driven by our own context, but not by another context, the story of God speaking into it is presumptuous prayer. Presumptuous prayer is prayer that's a monologue, meaning I'm going to pray and we're going to talk and I'm just going to get these things out there and we'll feel better for doing it. But true prayer is actually a dialogue. It's prayer that was initiated from a God who has spoken first. God has spoken. He is the, there's a bigger story that is at play than the story of our context. But there's a huge story that is there. There is a dialogue that has been going on that we're being invited to. Presumptuous prayer speaks to God without first listening to him, without knowing there's a dialogue going on that God is wanting to get our attention, that he is speaking things and saying things for our good to tell us of a bigger story. And sometimes when we multiply our human words to God, we we can even be indifferent towards God's words. But God speaks to us before we speak to him. This is how it is. He speaks. And as a community, we, we, we value this. God's speaking. Can you hear him? Do you know what he's saying? And in the Psalms, he tells his story. And we see this bigger story being enveloped. And it gives us language and eyes to see a bigger story. It gives us the ability to engage our own context, but it also tells us a bigger story that has been going on and that is going on. And if we pray without listening, we pray out of context. So life from its inception, from the beginning, which is told in the beautiful narratives of Genesis, to its fulfillment, is the result of God's making, of God's redeeming, of God's providing, and God's blessing word. All these things are the result of God speaking, of his words that initiate in his doing. So we not only need to pray out of awareness of our own story, we need to pray out of awareness of the context of the bigger story, the salvation story. Our lives have a story shaped to them, and the scriptures have this story shaped to them of what God's doing, and they draw us into the bigger story. So we're in this world of salvation, in which God is longing to speak to us, And so how do you answer? How do you answer when God is speaking a salvation story, the bigger story to you? And what the Psalms do is they give us some language, some words to know how to answer God as he begins to speak the bigger story to us. They give us language for this. They instruct us. They train us. They immerse us in this answering speech to God. And in doing so, as people who are in the image of God, who've been created in God's divine likeness with his fingerprint, and of people who have been redeemed, have been bought by the blood of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the love of Jesus Christ, we are formed into maturity. And the Psalms help us to do this. This is kind of prayer. So let's look at this, the Psalms of salvation. So would you stand again? Let's read Psalm 27 together. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? 
when evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come, and he will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At its sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O oh God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O oh Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. You can be seated. So it's a prayer, right? It's a prayer that the salvation is a part of it. It's one where the larger story of salvation, of God's intervention. Why should I be afraid? Verse 1. The Lord is my fortress protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? David's not saying that without already an experience of God who has stepped in, intervened with his word, with his power, with his goodness. There's an overarching story of God's rule and power and goodness and intervention of God stepping in, even into our messes. Here's the beauty of the Psalms in David's life. This was not a man who was without spot, sin, stain, trial, right? He messed up immensely. But yet God hears his cries. Here's the story, the bigger story of God's salvation, of God's intervention. In, in verse 8, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. Right? This is the initiation. This is God's dialogue. My heart heard you say, come. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to me. And he responds, I'll come. I will come. 
I will enter into your greater story, God. I will step in. It's not a monologue. This is a dialogue over what God has been doing, and David steps into this bigger story. You have always, verse 9, you have always been my helper. God's active and involved. This is the story of salvation. Psalm 62. Here, here's another one. This is a, in, in verse 11. It says that God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. This is again saying that our prayers are not being led out of our monologues. They're being led out of dialogue, and God is always speaking. And here's where God's words. This is what he said. Power. I've heard it many times. Power, oh God, belong to you. Unfailing love, oh Lord, is yours. Surely you will pay all people according to what they have done. Here's what you've said many times. I'm powerful and my love is unfailing. Prayer is being driven out of that. It's a response to the dialogue of God saying, hey people, in the midst of your context, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of that, I'm powerful and I'm loving. Do you have language to respond with that? This is the truth. This is what prayer is. It's us engaging with God in a dialogue of one who's present and powerful and loving. And this is a response from one who's hearing. Sitting still and allowing God to speak those words into their heart. One more, one more psalm, and I will close. Psalm 71, here's, here's just another example of this idea of two contexts, the context of trouble and of that, and the context of God's salvation to drive us, to give us appropriate language for prayer. My God, rescue me from the power of the wicked, from the clutches of cruel oppressors. Oh, Lord, you alone are my, my hope. I've trusted you, O oh Lord, from childhood. Yes, you have been with me from birth. From my mother's womb, you have cared for me. No wonder I'm always praising you. My life is an example to many because you have been my strength and my protection. That is why I can never stop praising you. I declare your glory all day long. And now, in my old age, don't set me aside. Don't abandon me when my strength is failing. For my enemies are whispering against me. They're plotting together to kill me. They say, God has abandoned him. Let's go get him. For no one will help him now. Did you hear the context of that? A language for crying out to God. The larger story of God's initiative. You alone have been my hope. I've trusted you, O Lord, from childhood. You've been with me from birth. Taking him back from my mother's womb. You cared for me. When you were still being formed, God was saying, I was active. That's the bigger story. God's saying, I created it all. I actually created you. I spoke over you. I breathed upon you. I have cared for you. No wonder I'm praising you. You have been my strength. And then here's the current story that this psalm allows David to be in. And now, in my old age, don't set me aside. When my strength is failing, my enemies are whispering against me. The Lord's not going to be with them. But yet, the big story 
is the one of God's unfailing love and power all the days of their life. The Psalms are meant to drive us into the story. They're meant to lead us there, that we could engage in prayer, and they would give us language to pray. They would give us language for answering God in the context of our own story, in the context of his story, when the lies and the attacks and trouble are going to say things like, God's not with you. He's abandoned you. He doesn't love you. You've jacked up too much. You're outside of these things. You haven't done it right. But yet, God is the one who's wanting to say something else. Are you listening? And in the Psalms, give us this answering language and a listening ear to what God's saying. I got two questions for us as we, I think, I think we made it into four. Here's the questions as we close that I want you to wrestle with and we're going to sing a song. What's the story that you're currently in? What's the context that you're, you're finding yourself in right now? Is it a story of trouble, heartache, brokenness, fear, loss, rejection, recovery, mourning? And the question with that is, is your story moving you to pray? Why or why not? If it's not moving you to pray, I think one of the biggest reflections you can have is the answer, why not? Now again, it will be more demanding, and maybe that's why, because it's going to pull you in into the middle of it, to pray. And then, are you hearing God speak to you in the larger, larger story of God's salvation? Are you allowing God's words to speak to you because he has something to say to you about his larger story, initiating his good activity in the world and in your life? And the final one, well, what is he saying then? What is he saying to you currently? And we could all benefit from pausing and saying yes to say, God's saying, in that same psalm that we said, the Lord said, come to me. Right? Come and speak to me. Come and be with me. Come and talk with me. And we respond, Lord, I'm coming. Well, Father, would you give us the courage to do that? Will you give us the courage to engage into the context of our lives, the demands of the trouble we're in? And God, would you open our ears to hear what you might speak to us, how you want to say to us, would you open our ears so we know this is a dialogue of you speaking?